Are you looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Brad Baker. And I'm Tom Broback. And, and this, this is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Today we have on my good friend, Tony Holler. Tony Holler, or at PNTrack on Twitter, is one of my favorite followers on social media. I've learned so much from him over the years, and it's a pleasure and honor to have him on the podcast today. We talk about a variety of things, from how his virtual conference, TFC 2020, went, to how 2021 looks like with coaching track and other events he has coming up in his life. Also, he just wrote a great article on Simply Faster, Roll Tide, the new model, talks about sprint-based football, absolutely check it out in the show notes. As for Bold Base, we have a lot going on like always. Make sure you check out the show notes for our link to our brand new Athletes with Asthma course and all the other programs, courses, and of course, keep following the podcast. Thank you. Let's continue to grow the mind and change the system. You, you remember that even though these guys are multimillionaires, that they are still playing a boys game with a boys enthusiasm. I yeah. mean, it, that's what makes sports so great. Um, is that you know uh, that just that's just unbelievable that grown men can. I mean, they are forever scarred from that game yesterday. Which you know that's the same way I am with a stupid high school track meet. You know, <laughs> I like the way you phrase that. But also because he's at a later stage in his career. You just don't know how many more of those you have. And maybe he plays a lot longer than we anticipate, but I think that hits home more when, and you probably see this all the time with your seniors in high school, yep. that that finality kind of comes and it's like, wow, maybe I don't have another one of these again. And uh, keeps it there longer. That's, that's uh, uh, He was the beat writer for the Broncos. Now he's with television with the Broncos. And he made some statement, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the saddest human beings, uh, types of human beings in the world are are retired professional athletes. They're just sad as hell because no matter how they frame it, deep down, they wish they were still playing. And there has been when they're like 35 years old, they're over yeah. there and they're just hanging on and they have to tell everybody, hey, I played for the Broncos. You know, hey, uh, you want me to come, you know, like, uh, you know promote your product or something, you know, like they're just sad. And right. uh, it, it's, it's such a weird thing in athletics. And I always say that in coaching, it's so cool that I get to witness those sad things and then realize that, that I'm not a has been, I get to continue because I coach. Which is right. And hopefully you have instilled things in your program. So these kids have other things to look forward to and strive for. And they have built more than just running fast. They've built character and good relationships, and they can feed off that the rest of their life and not peak at 18 in their yeah. senior year in high school. Well, I think the, the big, I don't know if I instill it, but, um, but I, I think that I've been thinking a lot about this lately because of the online learning thing. Right. Uh, you know, teachers have lived in fear for like the last 20 years that somehow education was going as we know it is going to be destroyed 
and all learning is going to be online, that computers will take our job. Right. And, um, and you know, we, it, there's been a war on education ever since 1983 when Reagan commissioned a, a study that he wanted to find education sucked. That's what he wanted to find. And, um, and so, anyway, um, I think this COVID thing has convinced everybody that in-person learning ain't going away. I mean, right. they do not want computer learning for their kids. They want in-person learning. And then I thought about what is it about, why is it that, you know, if I said name the 10 most influential people in your life, you would probably name five, at least five people from education. Um, and I, mine might be eight or nine. And, uh, and it's probably be, not because of what they taught us. It's because of what they modeled for us. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And instill stuff. We observed, right. you know, like hopefully like my kids, uh, will, will be lifelong readers because they knew coach Holler was a lifelong reader. Maybe, you know, that, 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 uh, that they'll love music because they know Coach Holler loves music. You know, all those kinds of things. You know, that you can be somebody that really loves a lot of different things. Um, and it's just great modeling. I mean, some some kids don't have a dad, and all the male teachers in their life take the place of that dad. And anyway, it's it's. It, I think it's the modeling that's more important than actually instilling stuff. I think one of the coolest things that you do is like in your bio everywhere it says either chemistry teacher or retired chemistry teacher. And that's, I would assume that's what you identify as first rather than all the other things you have done. Well, I mean, it, it was probably 80% of my professional life was in the classroom. Right. At least. Yeah. And that's probably, important. Yeah. That's important. 80, 20. And then I also, once again, it goes back to that modeling thing that, uh, that I wanted to be seen as a coach that never wore a whistle and never wore sweatpants to school. I, I wanted to be seen as that guy who could put his uh, nerd hat on and, and, and be a chemistry teacher and, and, and like be a geeky, sciencey math guy and then go out and coach, you know, and once again, that's modeling that's showing that you don't have to fit a certain stereotype. You know, you can be yourself. I think it makes it more relatable for kids too, that you're not just this all oh, sports 24 seven, like super jock. You know, I play, this is my playing career. And if you're not this, then you're probably not going to make it, but you have this passion for teaching and chemistry and relating with kids. And I think kids in chemistry class, like, wow, like I can run, he likes track. So I should probably go off for track too. Cause I like what, well, you know, so I think that's good, very good modeling behavior. Like you said. Yep. And we don't never do as well as we should. You know, I should have gone to the school play or every damn school play and all that kind of stuff. And I never, you know, I don't think I ever went to one, <laughs> you know, but I, I should have been better at, at even modeling more uh, diversity and all that. But so you want me to talk about 2020 uh, TFC? I do want to start with that. And then wherever we go from there is fine with me. All right. Well, it was interesting. We had to cancel uh, the TFC last June because COVID and all that kind of stuff. So, so that just kind of went away and it's sad that we had to do that because we were really hot with TFC because we'd had TFC Chicago, 
in in December of 2019, and then we had T TFC Dallas in in January of 2020, and then we had TFC St. Louis in February of 2020. So we had gone um, we had gone big time. We'd gone nationwide and all that stuff, and then bam, COVID hits, and so we lost the the, the summer one. And and it's so weird. People with TFC when they come to a TFC, they feel like they belong. They feel like they're a part of something. And people have this, we all want to be a part of a tribe, a part of a family, a part of a a, a bunch of like-minded, progressive thinkers and all that stuff. And so when somebody buys a ticket and comes to TFC, uh, I mean, we're, we're all this group that, that like each other and all that kind of good stuff. It's not just attending a clinic. There's there's a weird belonging sense. And so we really missed that in-person thing in, in June and everything. And um, and so we knew that we wouldn't be able to go in person in December either. So Chris Corfus and I had breakfast, and that's where we do all of our business. We have breakfast together. And we talk about uh, everything under the sun for 95% for of the time. And then 5% of the time, we'll, we'll say, what are we going to do about TFC? And, and Chris said, well, it looks like we'll go virtual. I said, people are sick of virtual. I mean, I'd already done like 10 webinars through Zoom and everything. Mm, sure. you know, it was it was sickening how much virtual crap was out there. Teachers are virtual every day. And I said, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be different. He said, well, uh, maybe we should have like 20 presenters. I go, that's a lot, you know. Uh, I said, well, how about 20 percenter presenters in 20 days and we'll record them all. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and, and then he said, well, let's do 20 podcasts too. I go, okay. So we're going to do 20 pres presentations, 20 podcasts in 20 days. And I said, that sounds pretty good in, in the year 2020 and all that. So, so it was something so unique. I remember Stu McMillan, who very seldom ever reaches out to me, but he said, what a great idea. You know, I thought, man, I got Stu's attention. That's pretty good. Right. Uh, so so uh, that's what we did. And, of course, we did not do them live Zoom. And I think that was a key because with live Zoom, you do not have very good videos. They're choppy. And so when we asked people to record them, uh, they were able to really give good videos good presentations. And as you know, we got some of the best people in the world, Jonas Dodu, Bush uh, Schexnader, Dr. Ken Clark, uh, Bobby Stroop, the trainer for Patrick Mahomes. Um, we, we got Brian Kula, the trainer for uh, Christian McCaffrey. We got JT Ayers. I mean, we had 20 amazing people. And and then our, our, our people, we actually expanded it from Thanksgiving to January 1st. So it was 60 days where people could access those recordings. And then I think the key thing were the podcasts, because with the podcast, we gave people the ability to feel like they were there, like right. talking like we're talking right now, where, where it's very informal. And um, we had fun, we laughed, we, you know, cussed, we whatever we wanted to do. Um, and and once again, those you could attend live, but you also had access to the recordings. So it just went really well. Um, it, it was by far, um, I won't even tell you how many tickets we sold because it's almost embarrassing how many tickets we sold. Um, it, let's just say that, uh, that 
I don't think Altus has ever had an event this big. Um, so it was an incredible, huge thing. And, and of course, you know, you don't want to say, oh, okay, we should do this every year, you know, the virtual thing. Because, no, I think we need, there's a magic about being in person as well. But it, you know, we survived the year and had a had a great consortium. I took 67 pages of notes. Oh, wow. Over the presentations. Yeah. And I was on all 20 podcasts. So about 30 hours of talking to the best scientists in America and all that. So personally, it was a really good thing, too. You could have charged 10 times the amount that you did for it and still people will still receive more than the value that they paid for. The fact that you got, and I went through all the presentations and the combination of knowledge and the amount of work some of these people put in their presentation between the video work, the editing, just the different research they've done, it absolutely blew my mind that I could get all this in one package. And then on top of that, like you said, the the chance for me to ask a live question to a Brian Kula, to a Bobby Shroop, to a Dan Fichter, that that value, you can't even measure that value. And I think everyone who attended appreciated the combination of, hey, this has to be virtual, but let's make it different, like you said, and let's make it worth your time and just way past the value of what you paid for it. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. And and you know, another interesting thing is even people who did not attend even people that did not buy a ticket, all those presentations are available on CoachTube. Um, uh, Track Football Consortium has all 20 of those of, of those presentations paired up with the podcast. So you could watch sure. the Bush Exonator uh, presentation on weightlifting for speed and then also uh, follow that up with the podcast that we did with Bush Exonator. So so people can still hit that they you can actually buy all the stuff still i, I think it's 250 dollars for 20 20 presentations 20 podcasts so the stuff will stay out there for people um to check out probably the only negative thing i felt about the tfc was when i took those 67 pages of notes i mean there are so many differing opinions among really smart people in terms right. of speed training that I felt like a young coach might watch all that and all he gets out of it is total confusion. Sure. You know, do, do you squat or do you not squat? Do you Olympic lift or you not? Do you push sleds? Do you push heavy sleds? Do you not push sleds? Do you, I mean, there are so many differing opinions out there that, that if you're not careful, you just see everything very complex. And as you know, I'm a simplifier. And, and I really, I cringe when I see young coaches becoming too complex. I'm just like you. I'm a simplifier too. And I don't say that just, just to agree with you, but I think if we can make this the simplest form possible without going too simple, I think that's the best, especially when you're younger and just starting and trying to figure out how can I make positive change in these athletes. Um, but it's also hard because you don't want 20 presentations where everyone's saying the same thing. And they're all going off each other, too. So it is hard to find that balance between a common theme and thread versus a variety of opinions. Yeah, I think that uh, obviously there is some common thread through TFC stuff because we will not invite people who are, who are grinders. We will not invite people 
that that are high volume uh, fatigue seeking coaches, right. and we will not um, we will not invite people who are um, grinders um, in the way that they approach kids. Whereas, uh, let me see if I can explain that better. Mm-hmm. These people that coach with that military model, that that truly want to break down kids and then try to build them up in, in a Marine type of way or something. Those people will not have a platform at TFC ever. And I've never really thought about that um, until Kier Wenham Flat told me that, that we've done a good job of choosing our enemy. I'm like, choosing our enemy? What, what in the hell is that? He goes, you guys, you guys have an enemy. And I had to really think about that. And, and I, we do, you know, right. that old school, traditional, mean ass, my way or the highway, military bastard. That is our enemy. Mm-hmm. And we are very pro kid, kid centric, um, uh, kind of essentialist. Now we may, like you say, we may disagree on the details, but there are some overarching things that I think um, become the common thread. I think another thing young coaches listening to this should keep in mind is how does information apply to your situation? So if you're a high tech person, then maybe listening to Chris Corfus is a little bit better. If you're a low tech person, listening to someone like you might be better because that's kind of difference in your, and I know you two don't differ on a lot of things, but Chris Corfus likes to get the 10 sprint out where you are more kind of like the, the old school, like let's just get the timer out, whether it's a free lap or hand time. So how does the information you are learning apply to your situation? And if it does, how do you implement it successfully with your athletes? Well, I think that's, that is exactly what every coach has to figure out themselves. That personally, I am not a gadgety, as you say, we don't push and pull sleds, not because I think they're horrible. Right. I just don't buy sleds. And I, I don't want to have to, you know, like being a, a chemistry teacher, chemistry teacher five times a day, not a PE teacher, but somebody who is like on the other side of the building in a classroom all day. Right. The idea that I was going to lug around all this equipment with me in order to be a track coach was like, no, that's I, I just want to go and see my team. And then we're going to train without a 1080. We're going to train without sleds. And some people are, are, want to attack me like, oh, man, you should be pushing sleds. We're just fine without them. I'm not saying that you're crazy for using it. Um, yeah, Chris Corfus and I are very yin and yang. You know, like I am, he, he's, he's complicated, I'm simple. He evolves real fast. I'm traditional. But we have a, this common thread again, which is the low volume essentialist speed is the foundation <laughs> uh, being we are not fatigue seekers i've watched him train athletes for hundreds of hours i've never seen one of his athletes ever tired ever and that is revolutionary and we are both on the same boat when it comes to that and that makes us very unique because as you know traditional coaches were all fatigue seekers for sure And I really, again, another important point for young coaches listening to this, don't just see Tony Holler doesn't use sleds. Oh, I shouldn't use sleds. Understand the why behind it. And you just said the why. You don't want to lug them around. Like you don't have the luxury of having like this own, you know, there's different reasons for everyone's why. Some might be 
you know, viewed better or worse, but you're doing the best with the situation that you have and you're doing what you think is best for your kids. If you were in the private sector or if you worked a different caliber of athlete, you might train them differently. But I think we get caught up too much in these kind of one line, almost like headliner statements like, oh, this person doesn't use sleds or this person doesn't squat or and we don't understand the full reasoning why and how it applies to our situation. That's exactly right. And um, there are people, when you said that, I, I thought about the people who, uh, there's about 12 people on Twitter that that I have unfollowed, muted, and eventually blocked. Because somehow they feel like by attacking Feed the Cats, you know, that they become uh, you know, they they get attention or something. And one of the biggest attacks on Feed the Cats, that's ignorant, uh, that we run 10-meter flies, and 10-meter flies are BS because you got to teach people how to hold their speed for 30 meters. It, it's such a lame argument. Every guy that I've ever coached that's fast at the 10-meter fly runs the same damn speed in the 30-meter fly. So these people just need to go away. And they don't have to go away because I just blocked them. Uh, but <laughs> One of the reasons why we run the 10-meter fly is because we're lucky enough to have this little strip um, in our in our field house. Um, we, we don't get the whole track, but we can have this little strip for my 50 sprinters. And the strip is about 70 meters long. And, and we cannot sprint for 30 because anybody that knows anything about it, you have to have about a 30-meter run in. You sprint for 30, and then you have like a 30-meter decel. Right. So, so our little space lends us to the 10 meter fly. And so that's why we do it during the winter. Now, once we get outside, we do 35 meter flies. We do 100 meter flies. We do all kinds of different things, all types of different metrics. But people who want to just attack, you know, for their own, I don't know what they get out of it. Um, they don't realize, like you said, that we all work within our own constraints. Correct. Yep. That's a great way to put it. And that's one thing I have learned very recently following whether it's you or a Mike Boyle or Joel Smith that they explain their situation. That's like, oh, that makes sense. That's why you do it that way. Or that's why you don't have your kids coming in on the weekend because, you know, because they go to school, you know, like Brad Dixon, he doesn't have his kids come in on the weekend so they can sleep in and recharge for the week. Whereas someone in a different setting might be, hey, like, Kids are most fresh on Saturday. We want to come in. So it really comes back to, like I just said, figuring out what works best for your situation. And that's why I liked uh, the virtual presentations, because I could take my time to figure out how does this information help me and what can I do with it? Um, but the one part of advocating for in-person is it forces you to take time out of your schedule to listen to all these presentations in a row versus when it's virtual you really have to dedicate that time and it's easy to spread. Oh, I'll do it next week or I'll do it tomorrow. And it can really get away from you. So if you're thinking virtual versus in person, I really think that in person forces you to take the time to pay attention to the person talking in front of you. And I think you get more out of it that way. Yeah. You know, I was thinking there's no way if this was in person that I could ever have 67 pages of notes because almost every note that I took, I had to stop the video, rewind a little, you know, scroll back, 
and then, and then replay it. Sometimes I had to replay it multiple times because I wanted to get every word right. And you don't have that luxury when you're listening live. Um, having said that, um, there is, I think, one of the best things about the live is what happens after the presentation. Sure. You know, talking to the person next to you, um, uh, drinking beer at night with coaches that you would never be thrown together with otherwise. Um, and you have the chance to say, but what do you mean by blah, blah, blah? And that person, when you ask him, they may explain it 10 times better than they did in their presentation because you are pressing them. So that in-person stuff, I think, is really important. And as you, I've had this idea in my head that maybe the answer needs to be a combination of in-person and recorded. You know what I'm sure. saying? Yeah. Where, where, and I guess we kind of do that when we do the in-person, we do video every presentation um, and then make it available for $15 a video. Um, actually, we make all of them available free to everybody who signs up to TFC. So I guess there is that recorded part of a TFC that I think is valuable. And another thing too, is that uh, if you have 20 presentations in two days, you only get to see about eight of them. You know what I mean? Right, you can't go at all. Yeah. There's just a, the time, the constraint, like you said, the time yeah. limit doesn't yeah. allow you to get to all of them or be fully immersed in every one because you're thinking about the last one or the next one. Yeah. And then uh, if you're like me, uh, you always stay up too late because you're all excited, you know, and, and you wake up feeling like, like you did on a Sunday morning in college or something. And, and, and you're like trying to drink enough coffee. So you're human during the first presentation the next day. So that's a good thing too, about having stuff online is you can do it when you're caffeinated and feeling good and all that kind of stuff. I also think it's important for people who do present to have other, uh, resources out there, whether they're guests on a podcast like you are now, or they write a blog like you do, or to have different courses, webinars, uh, in-person events, because people who like what you have to say are going to want more and more, like it never ends. So if you give a presentation and you have nothing else on the internet, then no one can really figure out what you're about and you can't really build a fan base or spread your message. But when you're writing articles for Simply Faster, you're coming on my podcast, it makes it so much easier for someone, wow, like I listened to this Tony Holler presentation, now I can go down this rabbit hole of everything he's thought about because he's put these resources out there for people to see. Yeah, it's so weird um, to me, you know, I'm doing my taxes right now and, and you know, my business is called Feed the Cats, you know, which try explaining that business to somebody, you know. It's like, <laughs> My, my credit card, my, my debit card says feed the cats. And, you know, like when I go to the bank, you know, the banker always like looks up at me, the teller, like what in the hell is feed the cats? So, um, so anyway, it's, it's shocking how successful my business is. And what's more shocking though to me is to look at how my business grew and it grew organically. It never, it never ever was an idea of mine that I would like to monetize my knowledge of speed training or monetize my coaching. And, and if you really look at people who, you know, like Steve jobs is, you know, kind of famous for the iPhone. It was never even in his head 
the iPhone just kind of like, and I'm not comparing myself to Steve Jobs, but 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 it just organically grew. You know, he was interested in certain things, and that led to a result that he never expected. For me, I loved coaching. I spoke at my first clinic when I was 40. Um, and, and so when I, when I see these 24-year-olds that are trying to be, you know, the the most important sprint coach on 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 the internet or something, um, I'm like. I didn't even speak when I was 40. And what I talked about at that clinic was total BS. It was fatigue seeking, Clyde Hart, we're going to be tougher than everybody else, crap. Right. And I'd had, you know, I just want to say championship. So, um, so you know, I must have known what I was doing or something, but I really didn't. I just had great athletes. And so that that was I realized I love to speak in front of coaches because they're the greatest students in the world. Uh, coaches are on the edge of their seat. They're wanting to learn, learn, learn. And I just, I loved speaking at my first clinic. And so I got to speak at another one here and there, like once every couple of years I got to speak. And, and all I knew is I liked it. And then in 2013, I was asked to write an article for the Illinois Coaches Association, Illinois Track Coaches Association. And so I wrote an article and I said, how many do you want me to write? And they said, maybe three, maybe one, you know, like every four months. And I said, I think I could write three. Well, now I've written like 300. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it, it could fill, it could fill literally, I believe, uh, I'm on my seventh book right now. Um, even though I have no books, you know, like if you put all the articles together, yeah, sure. I would have close to seven uh, 400 page books. And so I've only gotten paid for one of those articles. I got a hundred dollars for a stack article I wrote. So like 299 of my 300 articles, I got paid nothing for. Um, but I like the process and I love the fact that people read them and then engaged me in dialogue. So then you go to 2015, a couple years after those articles started, Chris Corfus and I sitting down for breakfast and I said, Chris, where are you talking this, this, uh, this winter? He goes, nowhere. Nobody wants me. I go, that's incredible. I mean, you're like one of the greatest sprint coaches in the world and nobody right. wants you. He goes, yeah. You know, you speak at Indiana's clinic and they act like, okay, he spoke there before. So you never get asked back. You speak at Wisconsin. Okay. He spoke there. So you never get asked back. I said the same way with me. I mean, I, I think I'm only speaking once this winter. And, um, and I said, I really like it. And he goes, we should start our own. So we started the consortium. And once again, this did not start as we're going to make a ton of money. We're going to have a business and blah, blah, blah. Um, it just happened organically. And I think that a lot of times people forget that, but going back to what you said, because I've written these articles, when somebody sends me a question, I will, often answer with a link to an article because because i i don't have to reinvent the wheel I, i've talked about that and uh, and it, it it did not come because i sat back and had this business plan it just kind of happened the more successful people that i talk to the more it seems like that's a pathway they just found something they were good at something they were interested in, something they had a passion for something maybe they've even done for 20 years and they just found a way to make it where 
either they could reach more people or they could pay for part of their livelihood or they could get a new opportunity from that. And the primary outcome, I think, can be profit or money. But I think the primary reason can't be that because you're going to you're going to quit too early because you're not going to make a lot of money right away. And that's the only reason you're doing it or the primary reason that you're doing something. It's going to conflict a lot. It can be the outcome, but your reasoning or your why has to be much deeper than getting a paycheck or getting, you know, X amount of people to sign up for an event. That's exactly right. I think, you know, if you look at, um, I was 57 before I think I ever made more than $500 off of my content, 57 years old. I'll be 62 in February. So, so yeah, it's one of those things where, um, luckily I had a day job, you know, I was a teacher and all that. And, um, one of the trolls online um, has, has, has said publicly, this is crazy, that I've been corrupted by money. And, and it's so laughable to be corrupted by money um, because, you know, I have four kids and all four of them borrowed their way through college. Um, two of them over $100,000 of loans. And, and, you know, my wife and I are both teachers. And my wife's a teacher's kid and I'm a teacher's kid. And only in America do is it where teachers uh, don't have enough money to send their own kids to college, and so um, so we're trying to make it up to them now with with the uh, the money I'm making in retirement, and uh, it was a good Christmas this year for my four kids. I think that's one of the issues of social media as a coach, whether it's money related or success related. So for success, if you don't coach athletes who are elite, or you have success in forms of state tournaments and things like that, then you are, quote, not a good coach. But then when you start having success, they only attribute to the athlete's development and their like genetic potential. You know, it's not even because of your coaching. It's because of the athletes that you have. So you can't win either way. Same thing with money. If you're not making money doing what you're doing, you can't support your lifestyle and it doesn't work out for you. But then when you start being successful at it, People start blaming, hey, you're only doing this for, you know, you can't win either way with these people. You know, I, I don't know. Do you know Brad Stolberg? Uh, he wrote a book with uh, Steve Magnus, two books, actually. But anyway, he's fabulous. He, uh, I, I love both these guys, and I can't remember the names of their books. I feel terrible. But, um, anyway, look it up. Um, but anyway, he, he tweeted something yesterday. He said, um, Twitter is so fantastic that if you follow the right people, you will get so much out of it. And if you unfollow the right people, that's just as important or, you know, something like that. Um, so, so basically to, to be good at Twitter, you have to follow the right people and then ruthlessly unfollow the wrong people. And I quote, quote tweeted it and said, said substitute life for Twitter. And to make my day, Brad Stolberg commented on my tweet and said, your tweet's better, it's awesome. And I'm like, oh, I'm humbled, man. I mean, this guy is like a hero of mine. But if you think about it, you know, life itself is all about following the right people. You look at our country right now. I don't wanna get political or anything, but if, if you follow the wrong people, you know, you're not going to end up in the right place. 
Um, and if you follow the right people, you will. And, and that's, that's <laughs> no matter how you want to frame it. Um, but I, I love that thing about Twitter and life being very, very similar that like my son has told me before, dad, you can't block people. You can't block people. That just means you're an asshole or something. And I'm like, no, I am. I'm going to ruthlessly block people that are negative. I am not going to put up with that. And it's just a way I think you should live life as well. And there's a big difference between someone disagreeing with you and bringing up a different point and just being negative, rude, unnecessary. And we, we too often block both of those. And I think it's really good that we block the negative, rude, unnecessary. This is negatively affecting my life on social media, which is crazy. But I think people bleed that into, oh, they have a different opinion. I'm just going to cancel them or block them. And then we don't grow. And then we get into these silos where we're not connecting. But you're talking more about people who are just rude and you don't need that in your life, whether it's in person or on social media. We don't need that. And it's OK to get rid of that and and, and use the platform for something because so many people are negative about social media. And I think it's been such an opportunity, especially for me as a physical therapist and strength coach, to connect with other people who have similar and different opinions than I do. And if you can use it in a positive way, it can bring a lot of value to your life. For sure. And I think, too, it it should teach us how to disagree with somebody that that if, if somebody posts, you know, like, oh, I love to push heavy sleds and and you don't do that instead of trolling that person, you know, like acting like he's an idiot or something, um, you know, you have the chance to DM that guy. You know, to talk right. off the record where, where you're not trying to get 30 likes for disagreeing with somebody. Instead, you are you are like, tell me more. One of the things that that getting back to, you know, like Twitter antagonists and stuff. Um, somebody said, if if a person that you would never call seeking advice um, disagrees with you on Twitter. You should just you should just mute them, block them, whatever. Right. Walk away from it. Exactly. Away from, exactly. Why are we so sensitive? People that have never met me and never visited a practice, never had breakfast with me, uh, has never reached out to have a communication with me. When, when they want to say, feed the cats has never produced an Olympic athlete. I mean, you're blocked, you know, you're right. blocked. Are, are you kidding me? Why would you tweet that? And right. believe it or not, that's been done a couple times. It's sad to see because, and even even going back to TFC 2020, you can just look at all these different people that want to contribute to this community. And they are, they're all over the world. They're in all different sports. They're all different backgrounds and minds. And it doesn't have to be this like silo system of, oh, this is one way to do it. It's like these are the principles and philosophies that we encourage and live by and try to promote. And there are a ton of different avenues that you can incorporate that into your system. It doesn't have to be this copy paste thing and do everything I do to be a feed the cast mentality or a track football consortium community member. Exactly. And, and I think too, you know, one of the things that I really 
uh, Feed the Cats has really evolved into is the whole idea that Feed the Cats is not a recipe. It, it's a way to cook. That that if you want my recipe, I can give it to you. I know what I did yesterday. I know what I'm going to do today. Uh, but my recipe changes. My recipe is not the same uh, as it was on January 25th, uh, 2017. It, still the same overarching principles. We're not fatigue seekers, tired's the enemy, not the goal. Never let today ruin tomorrow. Um, that we're going to be kid-centric. We're going to encourage kids to build their own house. You know, all those things allow us to cook in a certain way, but the recipe itself can really, really change. And so what that allows is that you do not have to say, no, we don't pull sleds. <laughs> you can do whatever you want in a feed the cats situation. As long as you're cooking. Now you may not want to pull sleds a hundred times, a hundred yards, right? Because that ruins tomorrow. That's fatigue seeking. So, so you not need to know how to cook with that sled. You may want to go with 10% body weight and do a fast 30, maybe even time it and do it three times. That would be more of a, that that's the way we cook in the feed the cats program, because we don't want to let today ruin tomorrow. We do not want practice to be the worst part of a kid's day. We want the opposite to be true. And, and so, so by doing those things, it's allowed feed the cats to be very reproducible uh, to almost any situation. Since we are talking about Twitter and putting out resources and things of that nature, I do really want to touch on your article, Roll Tide, the new model. And because of TFC, I knew that Matt Ria and his team were going to Alabama this season. And it was really hard for me because I couldn't just tell people like, hey, watch out for Alabama because they're good every year. But the way they were doing it this year, and you you predicted this, you've talked about this, and you really mentioned in this article, the way that they did things was different, and it seemed to give a different result, even for a team that has been a dynasty the last 10 to 15 years. So if you just want to touch on some of the highlights of that article, I think that is really good information for people who haven't read it. Yeah, the, uh, the, the key things, Matt Ray... Um, He's, he has a 1080 sprint. Uh, he was asked to speak at uh, TFC in 2018, and he really, really wanted to really bad, but he wasn't sure about the bowl situation for the University of Indiana when he was there. So we were on him. He's he's fans of ours. Um, and so here here's the difference. In most programs, I mean, I, I, I make light of the fact that Illinois uh, just got rid of a guy that he was an absolute power lifter as an right. SNC coach. I'm sure he's a great guy, but he's a power lifter. I mean, what he wanted is he wanted to have as many people benching 405 as possible. He wanted to have as many people cleaning 300 as possible. And that's what he put in his bio for the University of Illinois. I bet those are the things he was excited about. And then he would tweet out pictures of guys going through speed ladders, which makes every speed coach gag. You know, like, mm -hmm. are you kidding me? Why don't they have a real speed guy? So, and then then the new guy this year is named is named Tank, and he literally got married in a weight room in 2018. No Think way. He got married in a college weight room in 2018. Now I'm sure Tank is really really a great coach, and he's going to be great for the University of Illinois in the weight room. I'm sure he's a stand up guy. But what type of emphasis will Tank have? 
it will be a weight room centric emphasis. Whereas Matt Ray is going to have a performance emphasis. It's hugely different. Matt Ray was promoting miles per hour stuff when he was at Indiana and he turned Indiana into from a doormat into a contender. It was Matt Ray. I mean, their speed. I mean, I watched them play Michigan this year and Michigan looked thick and slow and Indiana ran circles around them. And there's a reason why that happens is because when you start, okay, in a movement sport like football, extreme movement becomes very, very important. What is extreme movement? How fast can you go? And if that becomes your priority, then the weight room, you don't lock up the weight room and, or sell it or something. Right. The weight room is a part of that process. What's the problem with every other school, including Alabama for all these years? The weight room was the process. It was the process. It was constantly bodybuilding, powerlifting, uh, getting stronger, looking better, body armor, all that stuff. And even though Alabama recruited track teams, they plugged those track teams into a weight room. Now it's all different where Matt Ray is now, I mean, his priority is miles per hour. But, oh, but lifting is always going to, of course, it's always going to be important. Right. But when you make speed the priority, the weight room is still a part of it. It's just not the most important thing. And just on a side note, there is a, uh, uh, a sports scientist named Dr. Jeff Messers, um, who has texted me twice in the last week trying to set up a meeting with, with Matt Ray and me and him in Tuscaloosa this summer, which would be, you know, pretty close to like the coolest thing I could ever imagine happening. I mean, it may only be 45 minutes, but you know, I would love to have 45 minutes with Matt Ray. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation too, because, and he, he just posted something too, where it's like, oh, it's my first Saturday off since June. I'm like, oh my gosh, I forget how um, time consuming college sports can be where it's every Saturday, it's all during the week, you know, it's 24 seven when you're in a situation like Alabama football, but just the results that they have gotten this year in terms of, you know, they put up close to 50 points a game. They beat everyone on their schedule. They played a lot of tough teams. They do that a lot of years, but the way they did it was just different. And and going back to your point where speed is a priority, you figure out a way how the weight room fits into that instead of how does speed fit into what we're doing in the weight room. And when you flip that, I think your, your lens for performance becomes a lot clearer in what your goals are and simplifying to have, like you always talk about, kind of one priority or one direction or one emphasis in your program and not trying to be, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. It's exactly right. My favorite slide on all my presentations is like a boss um, in front of a, a, his people and, and he has eight arrows going in different directions. And I, I truly think that that's the nature of parenting, teaching, coaching, business, where we are trying to go in every direction. And um, the reason why I love the book Essentialism so much not, is not because I went in every direction, but because 
I realized I was an essentialist. And what that told me is how to better uh, articulate what essentialism really means. And that essentialism is is stuff like if I'm a football coach, uh, what's the most important thing? Uh, probably the health of, of, of my team is probably and maybe the happiness. By happiness, we're not talking about uh, we're happy because we're going to a dance or something. It's it's more like a it's more like I can't wait for practice. I can't wait for the season. Um, we all, even in traditional fatigue-seeking BS football programs, every program I've ever been part of was, was that way. Um, we still game day was the most magical thing in the world. Just imagine if every day was a little bit magical. You know, it was every day was meaningful and significant, and we weren't just trying to get tired. Um, we were trying to get faster. We were trying to get perform at a higher level. Some days we backed off so that the next day we could perform at a higher level. And and that becomes just a great way to think and coach and, and it becomes kid-centric. I mean, I want my kids to go through programs like that. I want my grandkids to grow up and, and, and go through uh, sports programs that are kid-centric, that, that value health and happiness and you know, the, the most important things like speed, not, you know, like how far you can bear crawl or something. One question I do have for you, a lot of coaches I talk to think acceleration should be the primary focus of a speed-based program because a lot of team sports reward the ability to accelerate from standing to moving fast. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that top end speed is still the priority and acceleration is a component of that as well. Yeah, it, it, I think it, it goes to the weight room. Like Buddy Morris, the, the famous SNC guy for the Cardinals, mm-hmm. uh, Arizona Cardinals, he said that, uh, uh, that speed drives weights. You know, like if you get really fast, your weight room numbers will improve. But weights do not drive speed. So that, that's, why, that's why speed must be the priority. And weights is a builder of speed. It is not. It is not what your priority is. It is a builder. Speed is the goal. Same way with acceleration. You show me a kid that improves by two miles an hour in their speed. I will guarantee his ten yard or twenty yard time is going to improve the same way because acceleration is still a central nervous system product. And so the faster you can go, the more elite your CNS becomes, the better you'll become at accelerating. Now, there are sports, like you mentioned, like basketball, lacrosse, football, that are truly 99% or more acceleration. Basketball is 100% acceleration. Volleyball is like the ultimate. You accelerate by one or two steps. Right. But how, how does Boo Schexinator tr- uh, train volleyball teams? Max speed training. Because you will become better. Your, your vertical jump improves with max speed training. Your first step and your second step improves. Um, offensive tackles who are 6'5", 320 pounds. Let's say there's 30 of them that go to the NFL combine. 
which five will be picked in the first round? The fastest, not the strongest, not the meanest, the toughest, the smartest, the fastest guys will be picked in the first round, even though their steps are typically backwards. And there's only like two or three steps to a typical play for an offensive tackle. So if you say that there is no max speed with offensive linemen, then how come they want max speed? They're not dumb. It's because the fastest tackles are your best tackles and they play the longest in the league. It is absolutely essential to understand that speed, no, that slow does not fatigue well. Slow guys can hardly move in the fourth quarter. And slow does not age well. A, a slow NFL player is over the hill quickly. But the faster you are, the longer you can play in the league. So once again, when, when I talk about max speed being the priority, all these acceleration Twitter guys want to attack and say acceleration is super important in every sport. Yeah, yeah, so strength. We're just going to make max speed the priority because max speed will drive acceleration. Acceleration does not drive max speed. And I'll throw one other thing in. Uh, a weight room guy the other day, good friend, Josh McClure, said, but coach, if I can get a guy faster in the 20, his 40 times get better. Yes. Yes. If you get faster in the 20, your 40 times will get better. But that's not an argument against max speed. Because if I improve a kid's max speed by one mile an hour, which is my expectation in eight weeks work, I should be able to improve. I don't care if he's in the NFL or in the junior football league. I don't care where that kid, if I get eight weeks with a kid, he's going to improve by one mile an hour. If that happens, guess what? His 40 time improves because of that as well. And his 20 time will improve and his 10 time will improve. I think coaches need to, and when I say coaches, I'm talking, I'm not talking down to you. I'm talking at you because I'm learning all this stuff too, but they need to realize what are the best athletes, the best at in training? You know, if the best athletes were the best bench pressers, then we would focus on that. If they're the best squatters, we'd focus on that. It, it keeps coming up that the best athletes have the best top end speed. And if that, if there's a correlation there or even a causation, we really need to dive into that and focus our training towards that. And so many, and, and, and the reason I say this is because a lot of coaches will write down every single rep of bench press or every rep of squat or every rep of these exercises that don't really correlate to success on the court or the field. And then they won't time the sprints. And it seems like these sprint times are way more indicative of what athletes are going to have success or have the ability to display their success, you know, get drafted, get an opportunity to play in the league. And we should really be rewarding and emphasizing those things that are going to translate a lot better. I, I just absolutely love your take on that because, um, because what we should be at, for example, one time I was in Corpus basement. It was like 10 years ago. I probably spent hundred hours in his basement and he was doing some, something crazy on some machine and, and the guy's like going real fast for like 20 seconds. And he's, I, I says, so why are you doing that? And, and I'll never forget his answer. He said, I have found that guys that are really fast 
are really good at that. I'm like, it's so simple. Right. Uh, like, for example, um, I heard uh, a coach say, and I, I've said it as well, um, that that if you watch a kid hop over hurdles, you can pick your four by one team. Like the four best guys at jumping high and then reacting to the ground and, and you know, like very short contact time are going to be your fastest guys. Um, the, you know, if, if you have, if, if there's four guys in your team that have vertical jumps of 35 inches, that's maybe going to be your four by one team. I mean, there are certain things that really great athletes can do. Mm-hmm. Jump, sprint. Now, let's throw throw a wrench into it. I was speaking in Dallas two weeks ago to a group of uh, 20 guys that work for a performance coach. Um, Gino Pierce is is the head guy there, just a fantastic person. And what what a great organization. They're in, like, all these different high schools. um, But they're all S&C, you know, weight room-centric people. That are that bring a guy like me down to speak to him because they they want to go more in the direction of performance and speed. Actually, performance is in their name, performance course. So I asked them. I said, "Is there anything in the weight room that you guys have witnessed that say if a guy is good at that, he's super fast?" It was crickets. They just looked at each other, which is the exact correct answer. There is there is nothing in the weight room that that truly is a KPI of speed. Now, am I saying not to lift? No. Uh, McCaffrey does concentric deadlifts as one of the main things he does. The main thing he does is is sprint and do CNS work. But the weight room is a very important part, as you know, of Brian Kula's program. Um, the weight room is very important to JT Ayers. You know, the same stuff, mass specific specific force. All that stuff is really important. But the main thing is, it's not the main thing. And they would probably tell you that the ability to concentric deadlift, even though it helps a guy run faster, is not necessarily a KPI of speed. Right. Because there's probably guys that can, that can uh, concentric deadlift on the hex bar, um, you know, like 500 pounds who can barely run. So, so I think it's really important to look at all exercises through the lens of exercise and not lifting and plyos. Everything's an exercise, but what exercises give you the most bang for the buck? What exercises do truly fast people excel at? And if it is something like hurdle hops, I want my freshmen who are generic, you know, maybe they play in the band, they're playing on a team in their life. I want them to get good at hurdle hops because I believe if they get better at that, they will get faster. The closest exercise that I've I've seen or heard or read about that correlates to speed in the weight room is actually the pull-up. And if you would have told me that five years ago, I'd be like, no, you don't use your arm. You use your arms a little bit when you're on, but it should be a squat or a deadlift or something you know, or calf raise, something, you know, something in lower extremity. But with the pull-up, it's relative to your body mass, and it really drives home how can you get your nervous system firing, you know, throughout the whole kinetic chain. So it is funny that, you you know, you ask them, they're like, we don't, we don't have one. 
So it's like, okay, why are we emphasizing these exercises so much when it's not translating to speed? And like you said, everything is just an exercise. Whether it actually happens in the weight room or happens on the track, it's still an exercise. You know, you can squat on the track and you can run in the weight room. It doesn't really change the purpose or the intent. But I think some people just get, they get so caught up in, oh, strength happens only in the weight room and speed only happens on the track. And there, there can be some crossover between those two. More that strength can be developed on the track when we do plyometrics and when we do sprinting. And, you know, if you listen to Boosh Exonator's um, stuff on lifting to get faster, um, you know, one of the things that, l- let's say, let's say there is, there's, if you squat, it does not improve your speed. It, let's, let's say some scientists just figured that out. <clears throat> there's no speed gains at all through squatting. I'm not saying that to be true. Let's just take that. Hypothetically, out. yep. <clears throat> there still may be, and I believe there is one, and I believe Boo Schexnader says this all the time, there may be a hormonal response to lifting. So even if you could not draw a line, you know, like squatting improves your speed, you might draw a line that squatting improves your hormonal response. Maybe there you, you get you have more testosterone surging through your body and you become a better athlete, a better whatever you're trying to do because of that. I mean, if, if you think about it, testosterone is basically um, natural steroids. Steroids are synthetic um, hormones. Right. Whereas, you know, so so the whole idea that uh, that even if I felt that lifting There's nothing in the weight room that's going to improve the speed directly. There may be some indirect things in the weight room. And I don't know about you, but the weight room, I've lifted weights since 1975. And and lifting weights makes you feel better, makes you feel a little more athletic, a little more manly, a little more. There's a I, I can kick your ass type of feeling. When, when you walk out of a weight room, that's not all that bad for an athlete. Athletes need to have that, that, that bounce. So if, if you're getting that and then you're getting the sunshine and sleep required for dopamine, you know, those things very indirectly, or you might say directly improve an athlete's speed. One thing that has really helped me is when you're making a decision of what to implement or do, you can use a variety of different factors to drive that. And what I mean by that is you can use personal history, you can use logic, and you can use what the research shows. And it's dangerous to only do one of those. But when you start combining those, hey, I've done this for 20 years and the research kind of supports it, you're going to get better outcomes. Now, if you only do, hey, I do this, you know, and the, and the example is like, hey, like I drink blue Gatorade instead of red Gatorade and I feel better. Well, great. Like that might work for you, but that doesn't mean you should tell everyone else you can only have blue Gatorade. But when you combine the logic, the research and your personal history, that's when you can have success. And sometimes you don't need one of those. Sometimes, like you said, when Chris Corfus does a crazy exercise, Hey, I see the best athletes doing this. Logically, I think it works for me. The research isn't really great on it, but you know what? We're going to try it and it works for us. And I think you've really done that well with your history of 
timing kids when they sprint. You found that it's work, logically makes sense to you. And the research is starting to show, hey, fast athletes are actually the best athletes. Uh, Boo Schechsnader said, uh, guys, about the fifth quote from Boo, he, he needs a... I was going to say, we should, have, we should have him on the podcast, too. What the hell, you know? But, uh, no, Boo, Boo said uh, that, that the research is usually about 35 years behind great coaches. You know, that basically, great coaches have success doing funky things. And so then it gets researched as why does this work? And, you know, shockingly, then the research catches up and say, oh, it works because of this, this, and this. So, you know, so I'm not a big, I've even made the statement that um, that sprint science is a bunch of shit, you know, and, you know, people are like, oh, no, you know, but I'm a science guy, so I can say that, um, you know, that I say that, but then again, Ken Clark's one of my favorite people, and so is Dr. Way, and so I don't want to totally piss off those guys. But the the way we truly learn is very anecdotal. Like I had a guy back in 2005 that ran super fast for me because we trained him purely with speed, and he ran 47.99 in the uh, – in the 400 and improved by four seconds from the previous year. But he only got third in the state. So the dad thought he had not had enough conditioning. So then they plugged him into a Clyde Hart program administered by his AAU coach, where he literally did not train with his own team. And he never broke 50 that year. So he went from 47.99 to not breaking 50. Now, is that research? Hell no. That's that's a story. Right. That's an anecdotal thing. But that's a story that makes sense to me, that if you trained um, by doing 10 200s at, at 26 seconds, you are not training to run a 47-second 400. I mean, this kid would do four-mile runs on Mondays. And, oh, yeah, you are building a bit bigger aerobic engine. You will get results. It may not be the results you want, but there's results to everything we do. So, once again, that is not research because research is, you know, double-blind study, you know, large numbers of people. The real problem, of course, with sports research is that you cannot, uh, you know, grab uh, uh, 100 identical twins and train one half of them one way and the other half the other way right. and control all the variables. So in a way, sports performance science is BS anyway, because if, if two people who are genetically different respond to training differently, of course they do. They're different. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I think that that's why you and I get excited about all this stuff is because there's the research, there's the stories, there's the beliefs, there's the tradition, and somehow we're just trying to figure this stuff out. One thing that I have learned from you, it's easier to, if you want to influence someone or get their attention or to come out for your program, it's easier to start with a story. Hey, I can make you run one mile an hour faster in eight weeks. Do you want to come out for track? Or, hey, this kid started out, ran a you know, 14 second, 100. And by the time he's a senior, he was around 11, two or, Hey, did you see Marcellus Moore, you know, compete at state meets and win a couple events. When you start with a story and get them hooked, 
then you can bring in the research logic and all that too. But when you just start with, hey, like here's all these studies that show how to run faster. Do you want to come off? The kids aren't going to buy into that. No, it's the traditional programs, even worse than that. The traditional program um, does very little to encourage kids to come out for track. It's kind of like we just want the people who really love it. And so they don't have very good numbers. And then they just they just go right into workouts. And every coach who's a traditional coach is a big trust the process guy. Hey, trust the process, guys. I know practice sucks, but but we're going to be running great in May. You know, trust the process. Well, I never say trust the process ever because we are performing in practice. Unlike I ran track in middle school, high school and in college. And I was never timed in a in anything in practice shorter than a 200 meters. And that 200 meters was doing it eight times under 27 seconds. So I was not one time in practice in 10 years of track and field. Was did I ever perform in a practice? I have, I have you beat. I had 140 timed and I remember right. it. It was my junior year and it was it was the end of summer and it's just like the biggest like that's all you like cared about. And the fact that you can make that two or three times a week is just it absolutely blew my mind when I first started hearing you did that multiple times a week all throughout the year to get athletes faster. So I had right. beat. I, I got timed. I, I remember once having a time 40. Yeah, I call it, you know how, you know, like. In school, I always rail about, oh, teaching to the test. It's terrible. It's terrible. Teaching to the test. Well, the reason why I hate teaching to the test is because standardized tests in schools are 100% bullshit. They're, they're made up by people who were not teaching my class. They're made up by teachers who got out of the classroom because they didn't like teaching. And now they're in this office job where they're coming up with standardized tests that I have to give my kids. So if I'm teaching that test, I'm teaching towards BS. However, if the goal is to get fast, I do teach to the test. And so the way you ran the 40 was you were being tested at the end of the summer or something. You were being tested. It's either at the beginning of the cycle or the end, or some people do the beginning and the end. What I'm saying is if you are not testing the 40 or the 10 meter flyer, 30 meter flyer, what if you, if you're not, if you're not timing speed metrics often, you are not teaching to the test. And if you are teaching to a true test, and we're not talking about, oh, 100 meter times or BS. No, the 100 meter time is kind of important. I mean, if you follow my Twitter feed, almost every big play yesterday happened by some cat that was super fast in high school track. I mean, you talk about, I mean, I run a propaganda campaign every day of my life about speed and I'm a weird guy, but, uh, but yeah, when, when you, if you want to be fast, you could not ignore speed for eight straight weeks while your kids lift in the weight room and then try to increase the size of their aerobic engine by, conditioning. If you do that, you are not going to pass that speed test. One reason I really like TFC and Feed the Cats, the philosophies translate into other areas of life. And I really see the connection between sports and school. So in school, and I don't know 
if grades, I think they're a better indication of knowledge rather than learning. But if you didn't have grades for a class, I guarantee the effort you're going to get from your students will be less and their overall outcome and performance will be less. So when you are not you know, giving grades, aka timing sprints, you're not going to get the best effort outcome and performance from these athletes because they don't even know where they are or where they're going with their development. I agree with that. And it's weird because I'm kind of a counterculture educational guy, uh, but I've never agreed with doing away with grades. Um, in matter of fact, um, I did this for many years. Uh, uh, most of my, most of my, uh, entire career as a teacher on my chemistry test, I would have an honor roll that I would write, you know, like the top 25 people scores on the board. And that honor roll was really important. Now this is embarrassing, but real early back in the eighties, I would do a, a wall of fame and a wall of shame for my tests. And, you know, back then you could get away with just about anything, you know, humiliation was okay, I guess, in the classroom. But um, but even that motivated kids, they did not want to be in the wall of shame on the right. test. Now, the thing that I do with grades is that I don't care what I'm teaching. The lowest level science course, which I've taught that before. I'm talking about kids that may not even finish high school. And I was teaching them contemporary science. It was a great course. I developed it. Or if I'm teaching honors chemistry with kids that are going to be pharmacists and doctors and, you know, like the best of the best that I want to give nothing but A's and B's in that class. I'm an AB teacher that if you just totally rebel against me, I'm going to give you a C and I've been very, I mean, people have been very critical of me that, that I do not give enough D's and F's, but I never gave D's and F's. I never failed a kid in 38 years of teaching, you know, that, and because my kids knew that coming in, I think they appreciated my class. They had less fear. They uh, they competed knowing that they were not going to fail. I mean, I'm sorry, but you're not going to fail my class. Uh, you're going to get an A or B, and if you rebel, you're going to get a C. And so even though I was big on grades, I would rank top scores, there is still that, like you say, that competitive nature that I want to do the best that I can do on that test. And I think that if you're not measuring that, you will never get that. Therefore, when I say that if you're not spiked up and getting timed and having your times recorded, ranked and published, then you're not sprinting. If you don't do those five things, you're probably just running. It'd be just like if I gave you a chemistry test and didn't grade it. I don't think it would have the same meaning. And so it plays right to your point that there is a competitive nature that I think you have to try to tap into. Right. And I'm not going to talk about teaching because I'm not a teacher and I have no idea what it's like, but I can talk about grades because the classes I did the worst in, I learned the most. So I think grades are more, you know, and the grades or the classes I did the best in, I kind of already knew the knowledge and it didn't really enhance my learning. So I wasn't challenged and I didn't have to be as competitive, like you said. And I think that also carries over to a program where the kid who improves the most from freshman to senior year probably loves and, and buys into the program the most, even if they're the slowest kid in the hundred. If they improve the most or learn the most, they're going to be 
the kids you want in your program because they're recruiting other kids to come out for track. They're going to be your future assistant coaches. And there's value into that growth and development and not just at, hey, you know, you ran state, like you're great, everyone else, like you got to catch up. There is some value we can attribute to learning, whether it is in the classroom or development or whether it's on the track. And I see a correlation between those two a lot. And like I said, that's why the philosophies of what you talk about, they apply to so many other areas of life. And that's why they're important and should be known for other coaches. I, I appreciate you saying that because once again, one of the one of the troll things is that Feed the Cats is an elite program. It only works for elites. And they are, you know, I mean, 180 degrees wrong. I mean, it is like literally the opposite. Yes, it will attract the elites. It will attract the fastest cats in your school, which is really, really important if you want to be known as a good track coach. If you want to be known as a good track coach, you better get the fastest kids in your school to want to run track. So, yes, you you attract the cats. With mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that is that the most elite guys in your school will improve the least because they are closest to their genetic ceiling. Mm-hmm. Marcellus, you know, I will forever be known for having Marcellus more because he's the fastest guy in the history of Illinois and blah, blah, blah. But Marcellus only improved from um, in August before his freshman year. He ran 1081 in the 100. And a couple years later, he was two years later, he's run 1031. So he only improved like half a second in the 100. Just a half a second. That's all he improved. Whereas I may have a freshman that comes in running, you know, 13 flat that runs 11.5, you know, so he's improved three times more. So what I have found was that if, if you get a generic freshman, he will respond to the speed training even better than the elite athletes. Now the elite athletes are going to win meets for you. And yes, you're going, you know, you love that cat, but you're going to make that, that kid that's not a cat yet much more cat like, and then if you turn that back into the classroom, which is what you were talking about, I have taught kids that uh, had 36 ACTs. I mean, brilliant, that love my class. And I would love to take credit for them. But you know what? They were damn smart. And whoever was their chemistry teacher, maybe they wouldn't have loved the class as much, but they would have still been perfect. The kids that really define me as a chemistry teacher are the kids that came in unsure of themselves and eventually went home and told their mom and dad, I like chemistry. Chemistry's fun and I'm doing pretty good at it. I can't believe I'm doing pretty good at it. So it's just like speed training that, yes, the, the smartest kids are the people that you're going to, you know, like, yeah, they're awesome as a teacher. But the true uh, the people that improve the most are not the smartest. They're the kids that need you the most. And going on your comment based on test, I think they're in the classroom. I think there's a time and place for them. But when you look back at your, you know, your school age years from age six to 22 or however long you're in school, you don't really remember the test. You remember the labs, the field trips, the guest speakers, like the great presentations. And in track, 
yeah, you might remember your team went to the state meet or you won big meet, you know, but you're going to remember, you know, like the the day to day, how your coach made you feel, how your teammates interacted with you. You're going to have, you remember more of that going on. So if you're focusing only on either the test or on, you know, the state meet or getting to state, you're going to lose a lot of value in creating memories and emotional experiences and positive experiences for these kids that they can remember on later in life. Yes. In sports, I call it emotional relationships. Okay. Yep. Because there's so much emotion in sports. Right. And there's something about, uh, you know, like as an athlete having tears in your eyes and your coach has tears in his eyes too, that that's pretty powerful. And there's also something really powerful about winning and hugging your coach and, you know, saying, I love you coach, you know, and the coach says, I love you, man. You know, there, that's an emotional thing. I never had that in chemistry. There's no emotion in chemistry, right? But there's still relationships and, and the stories that kids would go home and tell their parents very seldom, very seldom were stories about electron configurations or, uh, stoichiometry predictions. I mean, th- th- those were not the stories they went home and t- it, they were the stories that had nothing to do with chemistry. It was this relationship of a teacher and a student or a student and a student. And even though they're not emotional relationships, that modeling that we talked about earlier um, is, is so important. And I mean, Uh, teachers are such influencers and then coaches are like influencers on steroids because the emotional part, um, they're such influencers because kids, (laughs) I don't know, maybe you don't remember this, but teenage kids are looking away from their parents. They, they are in a pushback mode with their parents. And as they're pushing back on those adults in their life, they are looking for adults, even if they don't realize it, they're looking for adults. Um, they're deep down, they're studying their teachers. Man, woman, it doesn't make any, they're, they're studying what they do, what their habits are. They're, they, they love it when, when teachers tell stories about their lives. And then if you put the emotion part with it, with our coaches, then it becomes really, really uh, big time. And we need to remember that. Like you say, it's so much more than electron configurations or so much more than the uh, execution of a perfect handoff. It is, it, it's the whole thing. And the people who see the whole thing, I think they're the people who really love coaching and really love teaching. I can definitely relate to the pushback. When my parents would tell me something, I wouldn't do it. But if my track coach said, hey, you should start eating more vegetables or you should sleep more or you know, and I would go home and be mom, like, we got to buy more vegetables. And she's been telling me this for years. And she's like, you don't listen to me. It's like, yeah, mom, because, you know, you, you listen, especially in those teenage years, your, who you listen to, you know, your parents care a lot about you. You love your parents, but you hear so much from them. It sometimes gets a little bit muted, but when someone that you want to impress, someone that you respect, someone in the community, like a track or a football coach or basketball coach or a chemistry teacher, sometimes it just rings a little bit different in their ear. And that's why it's so important coaches do have that good modeling behavior because you have no idea the influence you can have on a kid and their life. 
And and really, the kids I were kind of picturing are, are kids that had really good parents at home. Right. Yeah, right. I had great parents. I had great parents. Great I had parents. great siblings. Yeah. But you know what? And I'm gonna, still at some point, back. you start tuning. Yeah. You're still pushing back. It doesn't but, make any sense, but it happens. And it happens to all kids. Then you throw that in. You, you throw in, like, my father, who uh, was was an unwanted baby, was unsupervised, was, I mean, like, unsupervised to the point of uh, not coming home at night when he was, like, eight or nine years old and not having to say where he was. Um, he was shipped off in the summers. Um, to relatives and stuff because there were too many kids, depression, baby, government housing, you know, uh, parents working poor. You know, people don't understand what working poor is. Working poor is having to spend your whole life working your ass off and you're still poor. And so that's what his parents were. But when he met his first great coach, his basketball coach, totally changed his life. That he had no business going to college, but he went to college because of his high school basketball coach. So the thing once again, we're going back to even though we identify with our best athlete, we identify with our best students. We identify with our best kids from the best homes. But they're not the kids that need us the most. The kids that need us the most are the weaker athletes, the weaker students, and the kids that are, even if they have a home, they're kind of homeless. And, and those are the kids that, that we need to really, really focus on because they're the kids that not only need us the most, but those are the kids that can improve the most. Because, you know, I heard one time that uh, the kids that score highest on um, ACT, SAT, are kids that have three car garages. Think about that. If you live in a house that has a three car garage, you probably have two parents. You probably had good nutrition, good sleep habits. You got read to when you were a kid. Um, you, uh, your parents have modeled professional behavior right. because they're making good money. And the kids that live, um, you know, uh, in a two bedroom house with eight people, they're, they're the kids that don't score as well on tests, but they're the kids that need a great teacher and a great coach more than anybody. That's just an awesome. It's just so awesome that you see it so much bigger than I'm all about running sprints. You see it about helping kids. You see it about teaching kids. You you see it about creating those emotional relationships and building programs and helping other coaches out. Everything that you've done in TFC, it's not, you know, selfishly, I want to be a part of it because I wanted to learn more. And then you get involved, you start talking to other coaches, you watch these presentations, and it's like, wow. Like they're having such a good impact on me and I can't wait to help impact other people in the positive manner that I have been just to kind of wrap up the pot. You know, we could be talking for hours, but just to wrap up the podcast, do you have any presentations coming up, any virtual clinics, any blogs that you're excited about? Give me a, give our listeners that and then we'll wrap up the show. Um, yes. Let's see here. I have can consult my, my notebook here. Um, I have a couple things going on. I'm doing a, um, a thing um, for CoachTube uh, this, uh, this Saturday. CoachTube is having this give back to kids thing where I think they have Mahomes talking. They have uh, the guy that played left tackle on the blind side, that or guy that plays in the NFL, yep. all these people. But the problem with having only like NFL guys doing presentations is that 
they want to talk about, you know, like, uh, you know, hard work, you know, like never give up, you know, like intangible things. Right. And, and so they wanted me to talk because <laughs> it's also important to tell kids that they need to get fast, you know, on how to get faster. So anyway, I'm doing that. That's like at noon on Saturday. And then um, on uh, February 19th, I'm doing this clinic. I don't know if you saw it. Tyler Germain. Um, yeah, we had him on the podcast. He was a great he was a great guest. And uh, I'm really excited for that for that conference coming up. Yep. Yep. He's he's running some. Uh, it's kind of like a TFC type of vibe where he has eight coaches. Two guys are baseball. You know, there's you know, there's track. There's uh, uh, Rob Assisi is a, a jumps guy. Uh, there's there's a, a, a Gary DiFilippo, who is a, 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 a you know, like weighs 260 and is a power lifter type guy who also really loves speed, which is really cool. Just because you're a power lifter does not mean you're going to be a terrible speed coach. You know, you, there's still hope for the meatheads of the world that they can be, you know, a, like a speed priority type of guy. And he is. So anyway, that's a, a February, I think, 19th, 18th and 19th possible. It's called the BSPC. And you can look that up or you can just look up Tyler Germain to become a part of that. I think it's pretty cheap. I think it's about 80 bucks for uh, eight really good speakers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and then the other thing that I've been really big into starting in August is um, I've created 11 courses. Um, and I think there's going to be around 20 altogether. Um, they're all Feed the Cats courses. Uh, a couple of them are football, one's lacrosse. Um, it's crazy. Uh, I've, I've been on the phone and on Zooms with so many lacrosse coaches from the collegiate level lately. Um, they really see Feed the Cats as really being something that would really fit in well with lacrosse. And of course it would. You know, I think it fits in well with almost everything except for bass fishing, bowling, and uh, maybe distance running. Even distance running. I think I think you could prioritize fast running, but um yeah, bass fishing and bowling, those are two sports in Illinois. Maybe chess has no relationship with Feed the Cats. But but anyway, with most sports that value movement, fast mm-hmm. movement, um, you know, Feed the Cats is something that people need to look into. So anyway, those courses have been really cool. And um, we just put out one. The 11th one was my son doing the hurdling course. Um, and he's a very good uh, hurdle coach. And then the 12th one will come out next week, and that's going to be uh, – uh, sprint relay course made by my other son who just got a head job, head track job here in Illinois at Andrew High School. And so uh, he's going to put out one. And so anyway, we're building this uh, this huge catalog of stuff. And it's weird. Like, uh, like I asked Ken Clark once, who's your target audience? He said, high school coaches like you. And I was like, that's what makes you so good, Ken, is that you're you're not trying to talk above us. You're talking to us. Well, it made me think, what is my target audience? My target audience is actually people who don't know much about track. Middle school coaches, assistant coaches, uh, a distance coach who has no relationship with hurdling or sprint relays. That's really my target audience. Now, could somebody who's good at coaching sprinters still gain from, from some of my ideas? I think so, mainly because maybe I simplify the complexities to the point where they find better ways of saying things. So so that's my audience. I am not trying to impress. I'm not going to have any complicated uh, arrow diagrams and stuff that I'm going to, you know, like send to Stu McMillan, like trying to impress Altus. 
there's an entire subculture of speed coaches that everything they do is trying to get the attention of Altus, which just blows me away because, I mean, they sign guys that are running sub 10 hundreds before they even know them. You know, I mean, they're working with elites and, um, and the rest of us are working with high school kids. Right. So, so to me, um, the, the guys that I want to talk to are guys that can simplify and talk directly to me as a high school coach. I like that. I like identifying your target audience. It makes a big difference. You're not all over the map. And like I said, I'm, I'm a simplified guy too. So the easier you can make it for me to understand, the more likely I'm going to use it, the more likely I'm going to implement it, the more likely I can help other people with that information. I'm really excited to hear you talk at the Virtual Speed and Performance Clinic. I'm excited. I'm a huge fan of your courses and your blog um, and everything you have done with TFC. So thanks for being guests on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to have you on again. And uh, it was a good chat. And, you know, we met like last year, kind of like like on this day or something. Was it, was it wasn't I was thinking I knew it was later in January. Was it actually the 25th? I, I think it it was possibly January 25th okay. uh, last year before all hell broke loose with COVID. Right. And I'm going remember- to tell the story quick then. So a year ago. There was a, a trap. No, in, it was a year and a half ago. It was like November, October. I sent you a message on Twitter. Hey, I just read a bunch of your articles and they're really cool stuff I hadn't heard. And then you messaged me. I'm coming to Minneapolis in January. Like, OK, like make it work and uh, paid 100 whatever bucks to go to this clinic to watch you talk. And after you talked, I sat on the hallway and I was like, I really need to go talk to him. I have no idea what I'm going to say. But I just need to talk to him because I think he's he's different, but he's also has a lot of value. So then we talked for like 20 minutes or whatever. And by talk, I asked like one question. And you gave a bunch of good answers. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, lo and behold, I was like, oh, I wonder if you'd want to be on my podcast. I'm really scared to ask. But and then I asked and you said yes. And a year later, we've had on, you know, 12 to 15 TFC members. I, I went to TFC 2020 virtually. And there's a lot of things down the road. I even got my Simply Faster shirt on today from the presentation. So, yes, one year. It, it's amazing how much has changed in my life. And I just really appreciate everything you have done for me and for sports community at large. Well, about five or six years ago, Chris Corfus told me, said, hey, you're one of us now. And I'll never forget how powerful that was because, you know, and so anyway, uh, Tom, you're one of us now. So that's a cool thing. I appreciate that. The highlight, as bad as 2020 was, uh, two of the highlights were when Coach Holler, uh, when I met him in person, uh, I guess when he was on the podcast too, but then when he refollowed me on Twitter, that was a big deal to me. So <laughs> I uh, I appreciate being one of you guys, and I'm looking forward to uh, what the future holds. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. This is a great talk. <laughs>